One of the things that visitors quickly notice about Ironworks, before anything else, is that our worship is liturgical. Our worship is participatory, where there is a back-and-forth conversation between the liturgist and the people of God. So if you look at our worship guide, you'll quickly see that the majority of our worship service is scripted out. This is surprising to people, but I found that it's for... It's, I found it surprising for different reasons. On one hand, many think that a scripted liturgy, while it engages the mind, it never engages the heart. In other words, some presume that liturgical worship encourages hypocrisy because one's heart is never engaged. One of our people voiced this suspicion by saying, is this church going to allow me to be complacent in my faith? And another, but one of our members, wondered this in a different way. But And now she says that her liturgy, that our liturgy is one of her favorite things about Ironworks, as there's a rich reverence of God. Another reason which is related to this is that for an entire generation of literature pertaining to church ministry has encouraged churches to leave tradition behind in exchange for newer, fresher aspects in worship. And one woman uh, shared that she was surprised to see so many young people worshiping but using scripted prayers that you may find in a prayer book. So why do we worship this way? If that's how people view liturgy quickly, why do we worship this way? Well, central to the historic Christian faith and practice is the, the belief that the act of worshiping changes us. And one writer, after examining what scripture said about idolatry, which is the act of worshiping someone other than God or worshiping something other than God, titled his book, You Become What You Worship. But now perhaps this is surprising, but listen to New York Times writer David Brooks. He wrote, we do not become better because we acquire new information. We become better because we acquire better loves. We don't become what we know. In other words, what he is writing is this. We become what we love. We become what we worship. This is a time of year where we are encouraged to dream of a new, better version of ourselves. We expect that working out or starting a new diet, getting a new job is easy. And something something that really comes together like an Instagram picture. One click and it's perfect, but change is hard. It takes time. It is a process. It is like a Polaroid picture. It takes time to develop, but you can see it developing. And as we engage in worship, God is slowly working on us. When we are are aware of this, it is an easier reality for us to own and participate with God as he is working in our lives. And so what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks, we're going to be specifically considering our liturgy. But by thinking about our liturgy, we're going to be thinking about who God is and what it means for to to follow him. Because God is making and shaping us into a new people. And so very specifically, our worship is meant to shape us into the new people whom God is making. And that is a wonderful truth. And today, the sermon, the, the idea that we're looking at is that we are a graced people. And our text for today is from Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. 
And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the, one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. The text that we read together is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. And the word prodigal means extravagant or lavish. And so this title leads us to think that the reason why Jesus told this story was to highlight the foolish younger brother. The, the foolish younger brother who squandered all the money that's given to him. And that is an incorrect reading of this text. This parable is a story about two sons, both of whom hated their gracious father. This parable is a story about two approaches to relate to God. One is honest. One son is honest about hating his father, while the other sought to quietly manipulate him all the while resenting him. And we see how this parable is a story of two sons by reading it in its in its context, Luke writes earlier that sinners and tax collectors are gathering to hear Jesus. The religious Pharisees saw this and, and resented Jesus, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They are judging Jesus for, for really associating with sinners. And so Jesus tells a story that deliberately includes these two kinds of people, the Pharisees and, and sinners. Jesus tells a story of how the younger brother, which is representing the sinners and tax collectors, treat God. 
And he's also telling a story of where the older brother, which who represents the religious Pharisees, relate to God. And so in this story, the, the character who is most like God is the one who is gracious, who is forgiving and, and compassionate. That character is the father of these two sons. And the sad truth is that we are either like the irreligious tax collectors and sinners or the religious Pharisees in the fact that we want to relate to God on our own terms. Yet this is a story that celebrates the graciousness of God despite our sin. This story highlights that God's grace is for us. This story highlights the grace of God that is given to us because we learn a wonderful truth about God. We learn that whether you are irreligious or religious, God is gracious to you. So how do we see that in this text? How do we see that God is gracious to irreligious and and religious people? Well, first, I want us to consider the irreligious approach to God. In the ancient world, above all things, sons were meant to be respectful of their fathers and their elders. Sons were meant to listen to their dads, but the younger brother hates his dad. We see this hatred that in a very explicit way when he comes to his father and says, give me my share of the inheritance. He requests his dad to give him the monies that are going to be given to him when his father dies. He wants to live as if his father's dead to him. And perhaps the the language of hatred is extreme to you, but think about this. At the very core of this irreligious approach to God is something. Ask yourself what it is. What is at the very core of the irreligious approach to God? At the core of the irreligious approach to God is living as if God is dead. And that's what the son wants to do. I want to live as if you are dead to me. And we have a a picture of the father. And this is foreshadowing of some things to come. And when his son says to the father, I want to live as if you're dead to me, the father does not do what is expected of him. The wisdom of the ancient world would say that the father should beat and disown his son, punishing him for his disrespect, but the father does not do this. Instead, he acquiesces. He gives his son what he asks for. So we know that the father acts in ways that is unexpected of him. And like I said, that is foreshadowing of some things to come. And he does this in regards to the irreligious son of his. And but the second thing I want us to consider is the the religious approach to God. The older brother embodies this religious approach to God. He is very different from his younger brother. When the younger brother is faithless, the older brother is faithful. When the younger brother abandons his family, being irresponsible, the older brother is responsible and faithful. And even when the younger brother returns, the older brother is out in the fields. He's never left the fields. He's been busy working for his father. He's been serving his father. And so he is the, the one who serves on ministry teams. He's early to worship, to unlock the doors, to, to shovel snow, to greet others as they enter. But all the while, there's no joy or appreciation or love for the Father. And his heart is exposed for us to see when, because his Father is gracious, we, we see his, his heart exposed when the younger brother comes and it, the Father is gracious and restores the younger younger brother. But consider this. Jesus spends more time in the parable describing the younger brother's experience. He honestly 
the younger brother honestly sees himself. He comes to discover how much better life with the father is. He's humbled. He knows he has hit rock rock bottom. And this epiphany leads him to long for home, to return to his father. But he doesn't deceive himself. He doesn't trick himself. He doesn't think for a moment that he has the right to tell the father to restore their relationship. He's not proud. He is humble. And he assumes that restoration is impossible. All he wants is to go back to his father's home and be a servant. He never expects that his father will restore him because he knows that he has sinned against his father. He knows that he has lost his right to, 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 to ask that because he has already said, I want to live as if you're dead to me. But in this story, the younger brother serves as a foil to the older brother. The older brother believes he can boss his father around. He's been faithful. He's been responsible. He's been obedient. He's been doing the work on the church. Look, he says, many, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who has devoured your money with prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf for him? Do you hear the biting resentment in his words? Do you hear the accusation? Do you hear the entitlement? So when we hold these two brothers side by side, we learn something. They're foils. They're opposite. They, they, their differences show us something. They, they show us that it's actually easier for the irreligious person to know their sin. To, and because it's easier for the irreligious person to know their sin, it's easier for them to confess their sin to the Father and have restoration and reconciliation with Him. In other words, it's easier for the irreligious person to be saved. Jesus' story is, is a cliffhanger, and the listener is meant to respond. The listener is meant to put themselves into this parable and wonder, how am I going to respond to the Father of grace here? The irreligious person sees their sin. They see how they've offended God. They see in the words of Jesus their spiritual poverty. And religious people, on the other hand, they don't see how their good works are bankrupt. They still believe that they have something to offer God. They still believe that their good works matter. They still believe that showing up at church matters. But the only thing that we have to offer God is our sin. Our sin is the only thing that we bring to our salvation. God's offer is the same to both sons, irregardless of their religiosity or the irreligiosity. He invites all of us to have life with him. He's gracious to you, whether you are a religious person or an irreligious person. And that's the main idea of this text. God is gracious to you, regardless of whether you are religious or irreligious. And so in our story, we see the graciousness of the father on beautiful display for us. He sees his son coming home and he he sees his son in the distance. And the father at this moment does something that is also unexpected. He runs to his son. And in the ancient world, men wore long tunics and robes. And so he's not running to his son while wearing shorts and tennis shoes or jeans and boots. He's picking up his tunic, tucking it into his belt and running. And if men would run, they would undignify themselves because running is something that children do. But that's exactly what God does for us. He humbles himself. He comes to us in order to save us. When he meets his son, he does not hold a grudge. He harbors no resentment. There's just forgiveness. There's grace. There's reconciliation and restoration. 
He takes his signet ring. He takes his robe and he gives them to his son and he throws a party. He celebrates. My son who is dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. Let's celebrate him. And all the while, the son doesn't do anything to earn this love. That's true. It is unearned. It is freely given. But there is a cost to God's grace. Jesus pays the cost himself in dying upon the cross and reconciling you to God. He did what we are unable to do. And if you want to experience this grace of God, then you must admit your spiritual poverty and need for Jesus. That's it. God does not discriminate between religious or irreligious people. He is gracious to us all. Consider this a different way. Earlier this week, I was reading a story about a couple named Stan and Lori who adopted a baby boy named Nicholas. Nicholas was a Russian orphan. And so Stan and Lori traveled to Moscow to finalize their adoption. And they had to sign the paperwork before seeing Nicholas. And so they signed the paperwork at the courthouse and then they drove over to the orphanage to pick the little boy up. And they saw this little boy. They saw their son in this orphaned environment. He's covered in scabies, a a red rash that's caused by small parasites. He also has blisters on his hands, his feet, and in his mouth. And he smelled because his diaper had not been changed at least for a whole day, perhaps for a day or two. But this was Stan and Lori's son. Nothing was going to keep him from them. All they wanted was to hold, to comfort, and to heal him. More than anything else, I wanted Nicholas to know just how much Lori and I love him. God sees us orphaned in this world. We are covered in scabies. We have foot and mouth, and we are quite odorous. But instead of despising us or rejecting us or judging us, God graciously loves us and makes us his. He restores us as his sons and daughters. He makes us into his family. In other words, we are a graced people. And every Sunday as we gather, God calls us to meet with him. God invites us to come to him. And I don't know the motivations of your heart or why you're here today, but God does. And God brought you here today to meet with him so that you would hear your word, that you would see your spiritual poverty, that you would know his grace that is yours through Jesus Christ. And so we gather to enjoy God our Father and we are sent out from this time together with his blessing over us because we are loved by God, because we are a graced people. So what does this mean for us today in our daily lives? What does this mean for us? Well, I have three things, and I have three things for us. First, and personally, there is no shame in admitting that we are sinners. And so there's no reason to pretend otherwise. We are loved and graced by God, the one who created and redeemed us. And second, secondly, life with God is a joy. God loves you knowing full well all your sin and the entirety of your life. Often we live as orphans where we think that we don't have anyone who loves us. And so We look for love in all the wrong places. The third thing is that there's no sin that should surprise us. Religious or irreligious, we are all sinners. And when you experience this love and grace from God, then you are able to be gracious to your family, your friends, coworkers, strangers, and even those you don't like. Because God loves you at your worst. And he loves you. See, God showed his love for you when Jesus died upon the cross. And Ironworks is a church that seeks to magnify God's love. Jesus knows everything about you and he loves you. And we want to do the same. We want to know you and love you because we have experienced God's love. We want to pass that on. 
Ironworks strives to be a church where you can experience being rescued by Jesus as we are a church that, like Jesus, we are not surprised by sin and we want his kindness to be known throughout the borough and the region. We, we, want, we are this church because we are a graced people and we want grace. We want God's grace to be at the center of everything that we think, say, and do. Let's pray.